0: So welcome to this year's uh, Keynotes, Religions and the Practice of Peace uh, Colloquium. Thank you all for joining us uh, tonight. I'm David Hempton, uh, Dean of the Harvard Divinity School. And I'd like to extend a very warm welcome and thanks on behalf of RPP and the Divinity School to our uh, uh, keynote speaker who's traveled around the world many times to be here, uh, Dr. Alaa Morabut, who traveled all the way from Doha to be with us. And, um, and we have already put to work with two wonderful sessions already, so we're, um, we are um, uh, keeping her very busy. And also, a special welcome to tonight's moderator and discussant, uh, my colleague, um, Professor Jocelyn Cesare. Jocelyn, really great to have you with us. We'd also like to thank the Women's Studies and Religion Program at Harvard Divinity School for co-sponsoring. I'm also thankful to the Prophecyals Fund for the Arts and Humanities at Harvard for supporting this year's keynote events, and uh, the Reverend Karen vickers budney and Al Budney, um, and RPPs, other generous supporters for making this and other RPP events possible. And as always, our special appreciation goes to our RPP student assistants and staff for all their hard work in organizing this event. Thank you so much for all of you. you. A goal of these um, RPP colloquium sessions is not only to learn about peace, um, but also to practice peace uh, with one another. And um, as has been our custom for the last uh, several sessions, we're going to begin, um, uh, with uh, two of our graduate assistants, Hope and uh, Kinga, uh, who will offer introductory words for our time together and help us uh, get ourselves focused. So, Hope, thank you so much.
1: We are gathered to advance sustainable peace and to learn and grow in our peace practice. Let's begin by cultivating engaged, caring, and appreciative relationships here and in all of our settings. Sustainable peace is a complex endeavor to which everyone has much to contribute. We'd like to share some aspirations, which we hope you'll help us keep in view. As members of one human family, how can we relate to one another in a spirit of love and friendship, despite our differences, disagreements, and limitations? How can we acknowledge contributions from all cultures and traditions as equally valuable, and appreciate and benefit from everyone's experiences and personal wisdom? How can we attend to our biases and oppressive systems of power based on race, ethnicity, religion, gender, sexual orientation, economic status, and other factors, and empower one another to promote justice and shared flourishing? How can we work for equity and justice in ways that are humanizing, build connection, and promote healing and transformation? What wisdom, knowledge, and spiritual resources do we need to do this? Please join us in creating a courageous, respectful, and forgiving space conducive to deep sharing, deep listening, and mutual learning. Let's practice sharing questions and comments, as well as concerns and differences of view, while maintaining a validating environment across difference. We are interdependent, and we need one another to expand our vision and help us consider our blind spots. So, let's seek deeper understanding when we see things differently, draw upon our spiritual resources and support one another in constant improving our approach to each other and to everything that we do.
2: Thank you Hope for sharing those aspirations and raising those highly pertinent questions. We acknowledge that uh, sharing the conversation of this kind is challenging. And listening to other perspectives and sharing our own makes us vulnerable and feel very uncomfortable. And it can be hard to process this in the moment and even find words. But at the same time, I hope you do agree that things, these things are very essential for us, for our growth and collaboration towards sustainable peace. So we all thank all of you in advance for this. Uh, now to give an overview of uh, today's program, Uh, We will begin and end with a moment of uh, silence. Um, But first, after the introductions, Dr. Morabit will present uh, her talk, which will be followed by a brief response from Professor Sisari here. And then they will join in a conversation between Professor Sisari and and Dr. Morabit. Then after that, we'll give you five minutes to actually discuss um, with your neighbor, to the person next to you. And then finally, we'll open up the floor for questions and answers. And if you prefer to actually submit those questions in writing, please uh, do so. Uh, We will have the team members from RPP go around and collect the questions before actually the session starts. Um, But also if you prefer to submit uh, during the course of the session also, you're most welcome to uh, put it in the basket, actually question basket at the reception table or you can always post it on the RPP website and the email as well. So let's begin now with a moment of silent contemplation or prayer. In gratitude and in remembrance of all lives who are suffering here and around the world and set our intentions for our practice of peace. Thank you
0: so thank you uh, hope and Kinga for um, helping uh, center us um, in the one Harvard uh, sustainable peace initiative we're exploring how the university here at Harvard can draw upon its cr- cross disciplinary resources and global reach to help mainstream sustainable peace as a goal of leadership across sectors and communities, and to explore innovative approaches to operationalizing this goal in specific contexts. The United Nations, as it happens, has also launched a sustainable peace agenda. And we've been eager to learn more about how this is unfolding. How can activities for sustainable peace and sustainable development reinforce each other? How can high-level international efforts be informed by and amplify the wisdom and activities at the grassroots? What is the importance of women's leadership of religious communities and of religious resources? And how can their roles be supported? Dr. Amir UN High-Level Commissioner and Sustainable Development Goals Global Advocate is a foremost uh, expert on all these topics And we're really honoured and delighted to have her with us this evening. Yesterday evening and earlier today, she led two interactive workshops. The first on emerging security threats and stakeholder mapping and the second on negotiation and alliance building in sensitive uh, conflict environments with multiple stakeholders. So tonight we're delighted for the opportunity to hear from her on the subject promoting the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, women's leadership, religion, and leveraging scholarship. First, I'd like to introduce our moderator and discussant, um, Professor Jocelyn Chishari. Jocelyn is the inaugural TJ Dermot Dunphy Visiting Professor of Religion, Violence, and Peacebuilding here at Harvard Divinity School uh, for 2018-19. She also holds the chair of religion and politics at the University of Birmingham in the United Kingdom and a senior fellow at Georgetown University's Berkeley Center on religion, peace and world affairs. She's the president of the European Academy of Religion. Her work on religion, political violence and conflict resolution has garnered recognition and awards from numerous international organizations, such as the Carnegie Council for ethics and international affairs and the Royal Society for Arts in the United Kingdom. She's a professorial fellow at the Institute for Religion, Politics and Society at the Australian Catholic University. And she teaches here on contemporary Islam and politics at the Divinity School and directs the Islam in the West program. I'm quite sure how you managed to do all of that. Um, She's also a uh, highly prolific and uh, distinguished uh, scholar. Her most recent books are What is Political Islam? Islam, Gender and Democracy in Comparative Perspective. And she co-authored with um, uh, Jose Casanova the book called The Awakening of Muslim Democracy, Religion, Modernity and the State. She's written many other books, too many to mention, but we are really delighted to have her at the UNESCO as a colleague and friend, and also as our moderator and discussant tonight. Uh, Jocelyn, thanks so much for all you do for us.
3: Thank you, Dean Hampton. I would like now to introduce our speaker. Uh, Dr. Alaa Mourabit is a medical doctor, Canadian Meritorious Service Cross recipient, one of 17 Global Sustainable Development Goal Advocates appointed by the UN Secretary General and the UN High-Level Commissioner on Health, Employment and Economic Growth. In 2016, she founded a Global Mentorship Program for Emerging Leaders and co-founded the Omnis Institute, a nonprofit that challenges critical global issues by empowering emerging local leaders and became Executive Director of Phase Minus One, which provides thought leadership in conflict resolution and inclusive security. Uh, Dr. Murabit was recognized for efficacy in security, health policy, and sustainable development as one of Canada's top 25 most influential women in 2018 by women of influence. She received the 2018 Nelson Mandela International Changemaker Award by the Nelson Mandela family and the blog Her. 2018 Voice of the Year Award by Shaq Knows Media. In 2017, she was named the Forbes 30 on the 30, Haspen Institute Spotlight Scholar, and Bay St. Bull Canada's 30 by 30, There's a lot of numbers right there, but I, I <laughs> for my French mouth, it's a lot of numbers. A leadership in global policy and elevating the role of women, particularly young minority women on global platforms was recognized by Harvard Law School, which named her the youngest 2017 woman inspir- inspiring change. Dr. Murabit completed high school in Saskatoon, Canada, at age 15, and moved to Zawiya, Libya, where she enrolled in medical school and founded the Voice of Libyan Women at age 21. Challenging social and cultural norms, she champions women's participation in peace, processes, and conflict mediation. A program such as the groundbreaking Noor campaign are replicated internationally. A TED talk, What My Religion Really Says About Women, released in July 2015, was selected as the TED talk of the day and one of four moving TED talks you should watch right now by the New York Times. Nicknamed the Libyan Doogie Hoser, I don't know if I pronounce this well, but. Um, <laughs> By John Stewart and applauded for innovative approach to security, Dr. Murabit serves as advisor to numerous international security boards, think tanks, and organizations, including the UN Security Council Resolution 1325, UN Women Global Advisory Board, and the Council on Foreign Relations. An Ashoka Fellow, she is the youngest recipient of the Marisa Bellisario International Humanitarian Award by the, Itali- by the Italian government and was named the International Trust Women Hero 2014 by the New York Times, one of 25 women under 25 to watch by Newsweek, 100 top women by the BBC, and the Safe Global Hero. She was nominated to address the UN General Assembly multiple times, including during the Commission on the Status of Women opening session and to address the UN Security Council during the 15-year anniversary of Resolution 1325. Dr. Mourabit completed a medical degree at the University of Zawira and completed a Master's in International Strategy and Diplomacy with Distinction at the London School of Economics. Please welcome Dr. Mourabit. Thank you
4: I actually quite like that introduction. <laughs> I think it went quite well. <laughs> um, so I am incredibly honored and excited to be here today. Um, the past couple of days, uh, as Dean Hampton mentioned, we had a, a, one, a couple of uh, great exercises. Um, the first was stakeholder mapping, and I think there's a few people here that did stakeholder mapping. There's Anne, She's, her and I have, have spotted each other. Um, and then today we did negotiation, which was a live interactive negotiation um, that was meant to be a conflict situation, and we were we were meant to get to a civil war, and instead I think we stayed on a a local problem a dilemma of do you build a school uh, in a residential area dominated by senior citizens if young families want to come and move in there and what are some of the solutions and ways in which you can negotiate that space so when i was first asked to um, come and, and give the workshops and the lecture i had to go through a couple of things mentally first and foremost i am a policy and strategist That's what I do, I do policy and strategy. I'm not a religious expert, um, unless we're talking about my own practice of religion. And I think that was one of the things that I really wanted to touch on as we had this conversation. The second was why I fundamentally believe in the sustainable development goals um, and why I think it's actually a, a practice of faith that I fundamentally believe in things like climate change and reproductive rights. And so I'll get into a little bit of that. But before I do, I will start from the very beginning. I am one of 11 kids. Uh, my dad is a doctor. Mom was a stay-at-home mom and I was raised in Saskatoon. Who here knows where Saskatoon is? No. Like two or three people. <laughs> you don't? No, I don't. guess? I like how someone's like, somewhere in oh, Canada. No. <laughs> So it's. In Canada, you know. There you go. Okay. Canada's pretty good. I mean, we're working with one of the biggest, or the biggest land area country, but, but it's a pretty, a pretty good <laughs> answer. Um, so it's in Saskatchewan, Canada, which is the heart of the prairies. And uh, the population of the city, I remember when I was growing up, was somewhere around 190, 000, So it wasn't large at all. And um, we were one of very few families, I would say, who looked like us. In the past 10 years, there's been a surge of immigration. But when I was younger, that wasn't very common. And I am the perfect middle child. Now, I say perfect, some people laugh at this, but some psychologists have written that middle children are either radical or malignant for a family, which I personally find very offensive. I think that we actually transform the world. Um, and, And there's the extinction right now of the middle child. A lot of families are only having two kids, so I just wanna say, middle children change everything. They're fantastic, I'm gonna plug for the middle child. Um, but I have five older brothers and sisters and five younger. And growing up, right, but, I mean, it's a good place to be. I get all the benefits of being older and, you know, and none of the responsibility uh, and all the perks of being younger. I'm not going to deny it. It was a pretty fantastic place to grow up. But growing up, I knew without a doubt that I wanted to go into medicine. Uh, my dad was a doctor. Um, My oldest sister, who is arguably one of my biggest role models, was going into medicine. And you know, I think especially when we talk about faith, it's interesting to me because I fundamentally believe the walls of a hospital have probably heard more prayer than any church or synagogue or mosque. To me, it is one of the places where people are their most faithful, uh, their most generous, their most merciful. and, and, and I can argue that people who in any other circumstance would say they are not faithful are praying in the walls of a hospital. And so to me it was a place where you genuinely get to see people at their most human. And I always felt very comfortable in the walls of a hospital. I felt like this is a way in which I could contribute but also a way which was needed. So growing up, that was the plan. Um, I knew that from as young as five and six years old Uh, We have a running joke in my family, for any PhDs, you will not find this funny, um, (laughs) about what a real doctor looks like, and that was automatically a surgeon, right? I mean, that's, you know, an internist just Googles things, or back in the time, they would just look at their, you know, dictionary and uh, encyclopedia of health challenges. The surgeons are the ones you really want to fix things. And so the running joke um, was, you know, when you're on a plane and and you're having a heart attack, which doctor do you want? And that was the doctor I was going to (laughs) be. That was all I knew when I was young. I was going to be the doctor you wanted on a plane. Um, And as I got older and kind of went through the motions and knew medicine was the plan, um, I was at 15 considering whether or not I would go through, finished high school quite early at 15, considering whether or not I would stay in Saskatoon, where I would have to probably complete two bachelor's degrees before I was old enough to be considered for medicine. And I knew I wanted it. And my mom had moved to Libya a year earlier and I said, well, what's the option of doing it there? Up until that point in my life, I had never really felt challenged because of my gender, at all. And so people who know me in high school, when, when I talk about what I do now, they're like, what? When did that happen? Um, Which is fair. I never once felt like I was in a position of inferiority. I never once felt like I was in a position where I couldn't accomplish. I never felt like I was in a position where um, a system was created to ensure that I couldn't succeed, ever. It was actually quite the opposite. In my family, my father, like most immigrant fathers, um, prioritized overwhelmingly school how well you did in school. That was the metric for whether or not you could go with friends, or if you could um, go on that camping trip, that was the metric. And I did really well in school. So I was always told, whatever you want to achieve, you can. You wanna be a doctor, you wanna go, if I told my mom I wanted to go to the moon, she would probably say, okay, I'll pack you lunch. Like there was no hesitation there. And from a religious perspective, my parents always, you know, my mom used to say to me, "The mercy from your parents, God has a hundred times that." And she would always tell me because I had a, I had a few problems with the local mosque. I would go to the I I was always opinionated. I always have been, uh, and I would go to the local mosque and be told often uh, that my opinions weren't always necessary. Or I remember when I was very young and the and you know, the adults were praying and we would play, people would automatically tell us like, who's taking care of you, be quiet. Um, And so the mosque wasn't always the most comfortable place for me growing up. And as I got older, um, it actually became a lot more challenging because some of the language and the treatment that I was seeing the men get, my brothers get, um, was very different than I felt I was being treated. So I remember once when I was 12 listening to the Backstreet Boys, which I still think are one of the greatest bands of all time. And I will debate you on that. Um, and, and somebody went and spoke to one of the seniors in the mosque. And he called us in and said, uh, you can't listen to that. That's inappropriate. It's haram, which means like, forbidden religiously. Um, and there is you know, severe punishment. And I went home that day very upset, speaking to my mom and dad. And my mom was more upset than I was. She said, no, they shouldn't say that to you. They shouldn't you're going to the mosque, they need to be more welcoming. This is a religion of mercy. And so there was definitely that mixed messaging to a degree growing up, but never to the point where, I'd ever, where I ever questioned uh, my role or my space or what I could accomplish or what I could do at all. Because my, my parents' voice and my sister's example and my brother's example and all of that always superseded what I was being told externally. So I moved to Libya at 15 and um, enrolled in medical school and definitely noticed some cultural differences Um, in canada when my sister said she was going to go into plastic surgery the general population told her that wasn't a smart lifestyle decision the same thing is told to a lot of women here in in boston if they say i want to go into neurosurgery like are you sure that's the what? you're not going to have much of a life outside of the hospital right and so i'd heard that before but uh, my first year in medical school I was very clearly told by a professor, you know, it's great that you're gonna get the degree and hang it up, with the meaning of you might not necessarily ever use it. And to me, that was a shock. Um, And there were all those kind of cultural differences over the course of the next five, six years. But nothing that struck me as, um, sorry, I am freezing, uh, so so extreme that I would ever feel negated or, or the exact opposite. I actually felt like there was a lot of appetite in my university for conversation about inclusion. Um, I felt that there was so much appetite for conversations about gender equality. And what I think is, is confusing for a lot of people because we often attempt to make it sound like one part of the world has you know, a case made on gender equality and one part doesn't was it was so rare to find other people interested in medicine in Saskatoon, other young women, and 70% of my medical school class in Libya was women, 70%. So the difference in terms of you know, that, that societal and cultural support for women's um, excellence in particular fields skyrocketed, and I had never had that when I was growing up. I was always one of the only ones who said, I'm going to go into medicine, and there would be one girl who'd say, I'm going to go into vet med, and I'd be like, I would never do that. We were the two science nerds. Um, and that was something even our teachers would mock us for, or would joke, not mock, but uh, joke. So it, it was interesting to see that kind of switch. When I was in my final year of medical school, um, the Libyan revolution broke out. And I had no um, interest getting engaged in the long term. Um, Definitely believed I would, really wanted to focus on survivors of sexual violence and reparations for them. So what had happened during the revolution was a lot of the young women who survived sexual violence were not treated with the same level of, of respect and deference that a lot of the soldiers who had lost limbs or, or needed um, psychosocial or health support were. So a lot of these young women were not given the same psychosocial support. They weren't sent abroad for um, health treatment. They weren't given scholarship, you know um, scholarships to go abroad to study. They didn't necessarily have any of those things. Uh, the exact opposite. If they were treated with anything, it was Um, some patients from the community, depending on the community's political center, Um, but oftentimes it was like, this has happened, we understand, let's ignore it. Let's pretend like it didn't. And that meant that a lot of those women did not have support moving forward. So the organization really was started as a way to say, how can we change that particular conversation? How can we ensure that these women have reparations? How can we ensure support for them? It was not initially started um, from any political or economic lens. Very quickly, so I remember when I started it, I said in, in two or three months, you know, because school had been halted due to the revolution. So I was like, in two or three months, when school starts up again, I'm going to be done. I'll have solved this problem. Um, I will have solved women's equality, and I'm just going to go back to med school, and it'll be, you know, a very quick, short chapter in my my medical career life. And um, As I'm sure many of you can imagine, that's not how it went. Uh, For the first couple of months, we were talking uh, to different stakeholders, particularly women and um, other organizations about what we could do. Uh, Most organizations were still very humanitarian leaning because there was still active conflict in parts of the country. Uh, And so many were not prepared to have kind of that theoretical, (coughs) what they felt was a theoretical conversation. And others felt like it wasn't the time to have this political conversation. We needed to first you know, ensure security and remove weapons before we talked about women's um, you know, reparations for female sexual sur- uh, conflict survivors or, or anything like that. So the question first became how do we find people who were politically allied with this belief? And I very quickly learned that that meant we needed to start electing people and supporting people in their election who felt that health support was a basic right. From there, political leaders would say, okay, so how are we gonna pay for this? And we started thinking about, how can we get more economic power behind this? And over the course of the next year and a half to two years, we would help train 17 women who would then get elected. Um, at, at, in its first election, we had 17% of our parliament was women, which actually was the same number as the United States. Um, but we would also work with women on business plans, CVs, interviews and see how we can get more women engaged in the economy. By the end of the second year, we had also done a very large conference called One Voice where we brought together different religious, political, economic leaders um, along with civil society. So we had about 150 um, representatives from different civil society around the country and they would actually sit at the same table with members of what at the time was the National Transitional Council to solve things to ask the hard questions, to see if they could work together on solutions in what we hoped was a power neutral space. And after about a year and a half, we noticed that when we did the workshops for women's political participation or economic empowerment, they were the same faces from the same families. So families that were already relatively open to women's inclusion, their daughters would come, those mothers would come, right? Those sisters would come. And it was very rare for us to be able to engage women and girls from different communities that weren't already open to this conversation. And that was actually where we first began to delve into the topic of faith, which up until then, we had not touched at all. Um, Mainly because I was told by a lot of women's rights organizations, if you talk about religion, you're empowering the religious leaders, the more conservative religious leaders who are interpreting this exclude women. Yet, I would go into different communities and we would be told very vocally by families that they did not agree with us. Um, I had members of my own extended family say, this is great for you, but not for my daughter. And I would say, well, why not? And they'd say, well, because God. God doesn't think women should, you know, lead, and you can fill in the blank, companies, countries, you know, organizations, fill in the blank. Other than families, families women could lead. Um, and so very quickly we began to ask ourselves how do we actually tackle that problem? And in my opinion, there was only one way to do that. And the best example I can give of this, and if you answered this question earlier today, you're not allowed to answer it now. But from a medical perspective, if you are a doctor and the patient comes in with an infection on their arm, what do you do? What do you do?
0: Clean it up and
4: you might Okay. Before we do that, before you yeah. give them an antibiotic, is there anything you want to do? Take a history. Take a history. Okay. What else?
2: Look at it. Look
4: at it. You look at it. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. What else? Are you engage. What's your name? One, okay. Three, Okay, so that's part of the history. What else? I suppose
3: you have to ask permission to treat it to ask for the patient's permission.
4: Oh, you're a much better doctor than I am. I never asked, <laughs> I'm just like, if you're here, I assume you want some help. <laughs> 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 so you're going to take a history. You're definitely going to want to know what kind of strain it is, right? And then you'll want to debride and clean it. And debriding is oftentimes painful and a bit more difficult than a simple you know, putting a simple Band-Aid on top and some rubbing alcohol. But it does prevent the patient from coming back a week later and needing what? If that had gone untreated? What would happen to that patient's arm? Amputation. You'd probably have to amputate, right? If If that infection got into the bone and spread. So the reality is, by taking a proper history, by learning as much as we can about the root challenges, by actually knowing exactly what we're dealing with, and by taking the time and energy and expertise to treat it properly, even though it's more cost intensive and time intensive and and definitely needs a lot more specialized knowledge, we can prevent a bigger challenge a week down, right? And so from a medical perspective, identifying that root challenge was incredibly important. Why do we not have more girls coming from families that are not often in the workshops we're doing or in the seminars we're doing? if the challenge is an assumed religious challenge, how do we then treat that? So we started with something called International Purple Hijab Day. International Purple Hijab and tie. We asked people to wear ties and scarves, ribbons, etc. But the idea behind it was a day of solidarity. And that for us was testing the water. It's February 13th every year. It's an international um, day and it's action against domestic violence. It's actually celebrated because a man killed his wife in New York and and, and quoted it as being his religious right and religious groups stood up and said it's not. And so we said, if this works in these communities, if we can get more buy-in, if more schools open the door, if more families want to engage with us, maybe this is a conversation we need to be having. And so we did International Purple Hijab Day and within the first year, we had over four to 7,000 people participate. We had people who previously would never send a photo to us on our online Facebook. We shared, they would send it without their face or they would send it because they didn't want everybody else to know it was <coughs> them. But they would send it to us and they would say, our whole family participated this year. And we were able to go to schools across the country. Doors were wide open. People wanted to have this conversation because they felt comfortable with the language we were speaking. It was no longer about CVs and elections, it was now about basic values that they understood and shared. And so after we did that, we said okay, this is definitely a conversation we can have. Um, And as I said, there was a bit of pushback from a uh, a lot of international organizations and other women's rights organizations where they said you're giving power to this conversation. In which my response was I cannot give something power when it already dictates the places that I can enter. People were having these conversations without women um, they were leveraging this interpretation to exclude women. And so when somebody has more power than you in a particular society, I'm not giving them power. I'm leveraging that to get my own. And so we did something called the Nour campaign. And Nour in Arabic means um, to enlighten. It's this notion that this was a conversation that wasn't necessarily right versus wrong, but it was definitely, definitely one that only had one perspective that was being heard. And so, to be able to do the Nour campaign, we wanted to go to another level. We wanted to be able to leverage religious texts with authority. And I am not a religious scholar, so we knew we had to leverage religious scholarship. And we went to the highest religious authority in the country and gave them a list of the hadiths, which are uh, sayings of, of uh, actions of the prophet and um, verses from the Quran that we wanted to use. Quran is the Islamic uh, holy book. And over the course of six months, we went back and forth with them on those hadith. They confirmed them, which was important to us because we wanted their logo saying this was legitimate, we're not you know, cherry picking religious uh, sayings, we're not reinterpreting it. This is somebody you trust has approved of our use of this. We wanted that logo because we felt like that would give us a footprint in many communities. But then to go a step further, they said, listen, you can't use the logo if you have a billboard with a lot of faces on it. Um, we don't like this commercial. There's, there's some crude language. And so we actually worked with them over the course of six months to make sure that that messaging was something that they were comfortable with, but that we were still using the messaging we felt was important. And people often ask me why we chose to do this. And I mean, I'm sure you can imagine that an organization called the Voice of Libyan Women um, versus the most established religious institution, if we had gone toe to toe and we had been uh, vilified in the media or delegitimized, nobody would have heard what we were saying. So to us, the importance was getting our message out and getting it out through channels that people trusted so the message was already more trusted, particularly given we were talking about interpretation of faith and saying that the interpretation of some of these verses was leveraged for political and economic gain by other parties. So the Noor campaign first started with a soft media launch. We put up billboards and commercials and radio commercials for three months before we entered a single school or workspace. And we wanted to do that so people had time to understand what this conversation was going to be. We didn't want to be the first time they heard this to be when we were in the room. Because the immediate reaction would have been negative, we think. And so we had that moment for those billboards. People started having that conversation internally. Um, we had some funny radio commercials about you know, uh, different not funny but um, light-hearted commercials that were having difficult conversations. So um, you know, if, a, if somebody was being was failing a class, a young girl failing a class, and her brother telling her, "You got to study harder. You have to work harder." Um, and her saying why, and he would actually use a saying from the religion about how you always, you know, the, the cornerstone of our faith is knowledge. So the idea here was that we could have these kind of day-to-day um, interactions, we could root them in this conversation around faith, that faith is a daily practiced reality, and that it is embedded in your daily actions, that it's not can't only be used when you're talking about things that are, adhere only to the faith, like prayer or fasting, etc. And so from there, We then entered schools. It became the largest campaign ever conducted in Libya very quickly. We went, um, spoke personally with over 50,000 Libyans. um, And we did this through teams. So it wasn't me individually. We had teams in every single one of our cities. And those teams were made up of local leaders. So our team in Benghazi, which is the second largest um, city in Libya, was made up of a former minister. And there were volunteers. And so they would go into schools locally and the teams were made up of local civil society organizations. They then got to name their city team and they got to give themselves a city team logo. And the reason for this is because, as I mentioned, I'm one of 11 children and competition does wonders (laughs) for engagement. So the idea was, whichever team could reach the most people and have the most of these conversations was better. Um, And so each team had their own logos and and their own uh, name and and went out to local community, to the, the local schools and stuff. And the reason this is important is because, I mean, when, you, when I, I joke to people and say the first time I went to Texas, I felt like I was in a different country. And I think that can be said for most parts of every country. If you go to the east or west, they're fundamentally different. There's different attitudes, there's different ideas, there's definitely different social values and norms. And so for me to go to a community that was not my own and to talk about something as personal and as valued as faith, it's very easy to overlook what I'm saying simply by saying, oh, she doesn't come from here. You know, oh, she was, she was raised in Saskatoon, or oh, she, she come, she's from the West because I come from Zawi, which is a Western city. And so taking that in mind, taking that regional perspective in mind and the reality that that plays for people, we wanted the message to be coming from people they know, they trust, they went to school with, former professors, ministers, people who are part of their circle already. That way we were able to secure the message, which was using hadiths and and verses that were already approved by the Ministry of Religion so people could trust the message. We were able to take away the potential for people to ignore the messenger because the messenger was somebody they trusted, et cetera. And so we wanted to make sure this was as credible as possible on every side. And the last component of the Nur campaign was to get surveys. What we wanted from all of this was data. We don't have a lot of data. Uh, around the world we don't, but we definitely don't when it comes to post-conflict or conflict countries, and we definitely don't when we're talking about women's inclusion um, and the rights of women as they relate to social and cultural and religious norms in that space. And so for us it was a question of who do you think is responsible for women's inclusion? Who do you think is responsible for religious messaging? Who do you trust to deal with things like um, a dispute in the family, et cetera? And so we handed out a, a questionnaire uh, and the, the, cha- the questions were only different based on age or, or reading level, so a grade fiver would not have the same questionnaire as a university student. But the metrics were quite similar. We wanted to understand, in your opinion, who are the most trustworthy individuals when it comes to what dictates norms, rights, etc. And we included religious leaders, political leaders, even the media in that questionnaire. Now, as the years have gone on, um, this methodology has been replicated in over 40 countries. A lot of them are not Muslim-majority countries. Um, some are not even, don't even have a pr- prominent uh, religion that they leverage it through, but um, through historical stories and, and folklore. So Sri Lanka used um, stories of power, powerful mythological women that really helped that messaging come across. Um, and each context is dictated by the local community. Same way that we had done it in Libya, in most countries we highly recommend that local communities have local city teams. I do think there's something incredible to be said for uh, trusting those who have that message and and how much quicker the message then translates to action and implementation. So the reason I tell you this story, um, or these stories, is because they center three of the questions I'm going to try to answer tonight. Um, And the first one is going to be very specific to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. How many people here know what the Sustainable Development Goals are? Okay, that's actually pretty good. I'm actually pretty impressed. Most places I go, people are like, I know what the UN is. <laughs> okay, so who here can tell me what the Sustainable Development Goals are? Anyone? All the hands went down. Yes. Mm-hmm. hmm Perfect, so they're part of Agenda 2030, which is an agenda that the United Nations has set out to accomplish by 2030. They are 17 goals that go from everything from no poverty to reducing inequalities, to economic growth, to climate change, life on land, life underwater, partnerships, and peace, justice, and strong institutions. Um, which is the biggest difference from the Millennium Development Goals, which were pre-2000. Another important thing about the Sustainable Development Goals is they are non-prescriptive, which means they are not like the Millennium Development Goals in the sense that developed countries tell developing countries this is what you need to do to live better. They are global. There is not a single country that has accomplished any uh, of of the Sustainable Development Goals um, to the degree that they need to be. When the Sustainable Development Goals were being negotiated and in post-negotiation, there was an active conversation about whether or not partnerships, which is goal 17, needed to be included. People said that's just a known reality. You have to partner or else you're (coughs) never going to be able to achieve these goals. You can't imagine achieving climate change if you're not gonna work with other people. And so there was significant pushback in having it there. Uh, And many people argued, well, then we shouldn't have to write any of these goals because they all seem like common sense, right? No, poverty seems like common sense, the same way partnerships do. Um, but unless you explicitly say it, then people don't know that that's part of your value statement, right? That partnerships really is in and of itself a goal. And so, when we started looking at different partnerships, there were ones that were pretty obvious: corporate partnerships, right? Because we noticed that corporations have taken on a lot of the roles that nation states used to take on. Now you get your information from corporations. You can get, um, you know, your your information off Facebook at 9 a.m. You can get milk from Amazon at 10. You don't really interact with the government as much as you used to, to a significant degree. And so corporations were an obvious one. Academic institutions were quite obvious. Uh, Think tanks were obvious. Um, How else will we see our metrics and see what changes are happening? Governments, naturally, the UN is a uh, multilateral system. And what wasn't as obvious was cultural, religious, and social institutions. So the power that something like the Scouts could have on the Sustainable Development Goals, which we've now seen. Um, and the power that different religious institutions could have on the Sustainable Development Goals and on the implementation of them. And one of the biggest comments was, do you really think they're gonna buy into it? I mean, what what incentive would a religious or social institution have to work on the Sustainable Development Goals? They are, it's a country-led agenda. And I always felt like the best answer for that from my perspective was because I think the idea of reducing inequalities and no poverty and quality education and quality healthcare were inherently, for me, faith-based values. It was this idea of equality, compassion, respect, and that if we weren't having that conversation, then maybe it was religious institutions that weren't necessarily fit for purpose, not the sustainable development goals. Because I don't think, and, and I and I say this, um, I say this, you know, ready to be proven wrong. Um, but I don't think there's a single religion in the world that would overwhelmingly advocate inequalities and to destruct the, the planet and low literacy rates and conflict and in weak institutions. I don't actually think that exists. The Can you second. Say that again? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I said, I don't think we can arguably find a religion that promotes the antithesis of the sustainable development goals, that supports poverty, that supports conflict, et cetera. But,
2: that, but that's not the same thing as saying that if there's any religion
4: out there that actually supports doing away with poverty. It's a different, that's, that's a, that's a, from our perspective, a... Oh, I agree. no, I agree with you. Yeah. Right, That's and a tricky
2: statement, and I don't mean to be challenging at all. No, no, but please no, do. Religions are not for poverty, but they're, they're <coughs> not against poverty.
4: Well, either. but religions aren't really for or against anything. Let's, let's be, no, no,
2: wow. that's, that's. I'm a preacher, you just hurt yeah. my feelings. <laughs> <I> no, <know>.
4: no, <laughs> <laughs> I apologize, but let's, let's be fair. Let, let, let's, let's actually take this, this to, the, to the next level. Religions aren't necessarily for or against anything. Religions are, our understanding of religion may be, but religion in of itself, if we look at just the documentation, it's words on a piece of paper. What it needs is it needs human interpretation. And so the human interpretation of faith may not be for or against poverty. Do you agree or disagree with me there? No, I, I get what you're saying. I think um, my response and I think my fundamental belief is that there can be wonderful poets, wonderful interpreters. Um, we all, I'm sure, adhere to different scholars within our own faith and feel as though that scholar is, is the most expert. Um, but the fundamental reality is, as much as you can respect an interpretation, it is still a human-based interpretation. That is my belief. And I think that a lot of the challenges that we do see in religion today um, are born out of a realization that that interpretation is for the most part, in most major faiths, particularly the major Abrahamic faiths, is a very exclusionary interpretation. And what that means is, I think my personal challenge, and, and probably the challenge that I am sure I will have until I am 100 years old, if I live that long, God willing, um, is marrying what I believe about the religion to what I hear in interpretation about the religion, about my own faith. And so I think one of the the things that I always keep in mind is first off, religious institutions are just that, they are institutions. Um, They may not necessarily mirror your own daily practice. And oftentimes that leadership, the same way we see it in government, and corporations, et cetera, is heavily male dominated. That's been very true for Islam and that's very true for Abrahamic faiths. And so if you are not there for the reading and for the contextualization and the interpretation of that faith, then you are often not there for the implementation of those policies. You are left out entirely of that interpretation and that is something that we have seen when it comes to women's inclusion in religion. That because women were often not there during that interpretive phase, those voices, those experiences, have not been included in the implementation post-fact. And that can be now for for Islam and that can be for Christianity, for Judaism, et cetera. Um, And I think that when we look at really kind of what defines faith practice or at least what has defined it for me and what has defined it in my own work is a belief that oftentimes if we do not challenge that, if we do not challenge the the lack of inclusive interpretation and the lack of inclusive leadership, then those faiths are definitely used for political, economic, and, and social gain, but also they're not necessarily fit to serve many of our communities. And so my answer to your question about religions not necessarily being for poverty is that we haven't interpreted them. Uh, For action against poverty is because we haven't interpreted them to be that way. When I think of Islam and the way my parents taught it to me and and the idea that it is of mercy and it is of grace and it is forgiveness um, and that God is the most beneficial and the most merciful, I automatically assume, based on that text, that it is a religion that is overwhelmingly opposed to waste and to poverty. That would be my personal understanding of the faith. And I think what faith communities have not leveraged enough um, is, the, is, is challenging interpretation that leans more negatively. And that's often because we don't necessarily have inclusive interpretation. We don't have uh, homeless people given the same level of respect and in, in, in religious interpretation as we do those who get to live in those beautiful um, homes near, or near mosques and stuff like that. And that goes back to every major Abrahamic faith. And the last thing I'll touch on before we do open question and answer, because I'm sure there's gonna be a lot, mm-hmm. um, is, is really focusing on that inclusive interpretation. So when I am asked what I think the biggest challenge is for, women's, uh, for religious institutions moving forward, um, my answer is always that I think much like every other institution, every other corporation, every other space, religions do actually need inclusive leadership. We know that there isn't enough. I mean, we can see that and we can also see when women's leadership does come in, that families and communities are more open and more willing to listen to different perspectives and opinions on what, are, what seem to be very strict faith-based notions. And so a good example I'll give here is, um, is there was a, and in my opinion, it, it is um, a more extreme interpretation that a woman who is raped must marry her rapist. And it wasn't until women scholars, and and women's leaders, uh, religious leaders, stood up against that and actually used religious scripture to say, no, that in fact is not true. That was the first time it had happened. And a lot of people said, well, why hadn't it happened before? And that's where we have to start asking ourselves, are the doors open when it comes to religious education? When I look at Islam, because that's the faith that I know best, I know that that's not the case. Uh, the doors are not as open for women's religious education in Islam as they are for for women, as they are for men. We know that because women are often not able to study in those centers without uh, a male accompaniment. We know that because they are not given the same resources and support. We know that because oftentimes women have isolated um, centers of education that are not deemed at the same level as men. Now this will not surprise you, but most faiths mirror this. Mm -hmm. Be it Christianity, be it Judaism, the the level of female scholarship and the openness to female scholarship in religion is much more limited than it is for men. And then we ask ourselves why these interpretations are often very exclusionary. And so my ultimate question I think when it comes to the execution of the sustainable development goals, peace in general, I mean we know that women's inclusion when it comes to a corporate board, if you have 30% of women, people trust you more and you have higher economic output as a company, right? We know that if you have a minimum of 30% of women on a parliament, you are more trusted. Citizens have more trust in the government and, the par- and that um, group is considered more transparent. That's the perception, right? And Perception is often reality, so we know that. We know that when it comes to inclusive peace processes, 90% of peace processes will fail within five years. When we include women, you look at a 35 times higher chance of them lasting 15 years. We know that, we know women's inclusion Economically, socially, politically, pays dividends, and so I think the one the one point that I always like to make um, is that why are we not asking those same questions about religion? Why are we not asking about inclusion in faith? Because I personally think that is the single most transformative. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Um, For the sake of some exchange between us, I just would like to raise a few points that are directly related to what you said. So you said a lot of things, so (laughs) I will just focus on a few things that really um, brought my attention. The first one is when you move to Libya and you realize that not you, but uh, comparing to your situation with Canada, the status of women's rights in Libya um, and the fact that women were indeed part of uh, lots of bodies of higher learning and part of social and economic forces. This is something that is very key because having looked at lots of discussion on women's rights and Islam the idea is that women are behind in all aspects. And it's too bad, to, I don't have my PowerPoint, but I would show you that actually, even in equality of salaries, even in political representation in some Muslim countries, they are be, be beyond or before yeah. Western countries. Yeah. So, and why we don't realize that? Because we look at the religious dimension which is not automatically included in this social advancement. Women's rights were advanced in the post-colonial context by multiple states, meaning in the sense that the the building of of the new communities, national communities implied promotion of women and lots of authoritarian state were using it like, you know, we are good to women. Um, but at the same time, the women were remaining, and you said it several times, the pillar of the family. Mm-hmm. So they were advancing women's rights in uh, education, economy, even political representation, but maintaining women in some kind of more subdued situation in the family. Mm-hmm. And in the West, we have this kind of vision that all these go together. Meaning, if you look at the evolution, the curve of women's rights, you know, it goes from equality of rights, sexual equality, and so on. Why in most of evolution of women, especially in Muslim countries, the two don't go together. And I'm gonna say, it: Iran is a perfect, is a perfect example. There is a joke in Iran, a woman can run for president, election although it has changed, but she cannot divorce her husband. Mm-hmm. That's the paradox of, of women's rights in most of Muslim countries. And I think y- your experience here shows that and, and it should be said more more um, clearly that you know the, the challenges are not at all level mm-hmm. of human rights. And Islam is not I mean, most of Muslim leaders have said it clearly, unless we are talking about Saudi and Wahhabi, and it's another story. But you could not find any uh, traditional religious leader opposing women's education or... or or social work, or, or even civic activity. So yes. this is, these are important things to do, that, to remind people. But does it mean that women are completely a free agent when it comes to sexuality and family life? No.
4: But do you, I have a question for you. Do you think that's true for women anywhere?
3: Uh, it's true for women that are dealing with, uh, I would say, some kind of religious prescription uh, I, what happened if i if I look at the example of the evolution of women 's rights in catholic countries mm-hmm. the, the 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 package came together i mean in the sense it was political emancipation but also emancipation for the limitation of the church mm-hmm. while these two elements didn 't didn't go together in the evolution of women's rights in Muslim countries. And the the point is not about Islam, it's that. It is about a new way of dealing with the status of women in this new national community. Mm -hmm. And they are central. That's why the the body of women is central to all political fight. Because (laughs) there was a time when the secular leaders were unveiling them. There was you know. Which is still happening. Yes, exactly. Uh, But now it's the opposite. You veil them. But the the logic is the same. It is the women are the guarantee of our national identity. Well,
4: 100%. So there's a theory when we look at um, feminist theory and we look at conflict. And we talk about how women's bodies often represent the borders of nations. So when we look at sexual violence and conflict, uh, one of the reasons that sexual violence is often a tactic and a tool in conflict is because if you are to sexually violate the women, which is the national borders of that country, you have not only taken dignity away from the opposing country, but then you can also actually force them to carry your own child and then that's prevent political. long-term conflict again, right? So that's a, that's a, a often used um, tool in, in war. I think one of the, rea- there's a couple of things I will say. I think we have to be very aware that you know, when we talk about Muslim countries, it's not homogeneous yeah, at sure. all. Muslim countries is a huge spectrum, um, and, and you know Iran, I think, can very rarely be used as an example for the majority, and it's very easy. We see it in the media every day, and I think the reason that we don't know how incredibly powerful women are in many yeah. Muslim countries is because the media paints a very good picture of those you know, kind of traditional Islamophobic tropes of women being um, you know, complete, always covered in burqas, et cetera, et cetera. And and while it is true that some women around the world, and Iran is an example of it, are forced to wear the scarf in some countries, they are also equally asked to take it off in countries like France. And so I think it would be unfair to assume that there is any country in the world, uh, be it it coming from Catholic origin or Muslim origin or or really any, where we can say that women have been emancipated fully at all. I mean, I can find, things like abortion rights and reproductive rights in the United States as religiously rooted as you will find things like um, political and, and, and reproductive rights in, the, in Muslim countries or in Jewish countries politically rooted. And we have to be very aware that that's something that, is, that g- crosses all religions and, um, and you, know, you you brought up the Catholic Church. A good example is Argentina, which has the highest femicide rates in the world the highest femicide rates in the world and they have marches against femicide and a huge part of that is this belief that, that the woman is the honour of the family, mm-hmm. right? We talk about honour killings and I, and I often hear them in, um, in, in, in mentioned for Muslim majority countries and, and my question to that is 75 to 80% of women killed in the United States are killed by a significant so other. Yeah. And oftentimes the significant other claims it is because she has, she has brought shame to him, which is in and of itself a form of honour killing. And so we're very, we're very, I think, complacent with changing the terms and assuming that this is something that is removed from us. And I think it's, I, I, I do fundamentally believe it is a challenge of all religions, yeah. because at the very core, if you do not have women there at the interpretation level, then they are excluded from the interpretation for every major faith, and they become fair game. I fundamentally believe that we could look at any faith and say how could this have been transformed if women were there from the agenda-setting, interpretation-setting phase? From that phase. If we had said, you know, not, not 60 years ago, uh, particular women and minorities got voting rights, but long before that, because they were part of that agenda-setting, interpretation-setting phase. And I think the biggest challenge there is recognizing and owning that religion is a significant economic political tool. It is. And, and so this brings me to the second point I wanted
3: to make before opening to the, to the audience. It's what you describe is, is something key which is mobilization that is not based on principles but based on solving issues. Mm-hmm. And it's very far from the academic way of thinking, but I think it's key to understand how people interact I, I, in some context. And um, you presented this work you did with the Noor campaign as not political. And you are right if we
4: think of politics as political parties Oh no, it was political. Our initial work was apolitical. Yes. The Noor campaign was overwhelmingly political.
3: Okay, but even the initial work, I would say it is political. Mm -hmm. Because then I am, sorry to become theoretical, but I'm Aristotelian, meaning what did Aristotle say? The man, man is so on the man is a political beast, <laughs> meaning you do not exist and politics doesn't mean political parties or state. It means what you mentioned strongly when you talk about Islam and religion is community. You do not exist, despite all our discourse on individualization, if you're not a community and police is first and foremost the management of community. So religion is part of it since the beginning. It's our westernization that has put religion in a nice little niche like it's my faith that I wear inside or on the side. But religion since the beginning (laughs) is about building a community, especially in Abrahamic faith. Mm -hmm. Religion doesn't come from me or you, it comes from a community. Anthropologists said uh, uh, monotheism is one God, one message, one people. It's not me, it's a community, it's a revelation-based community. So in this sense, it's eminently political, but not in the politician or partisan sense. And it's, it's key to rehabilitate this community dimension of religion. That's why people are pushing back against you, because they want religion in a nice little niche. Like you go to the Imam or you go to the mosque and you think you have Govern the religious voice, but why the religious voice is all the people doing things that may have nothing to do with rituals, and I think this is key. And this is where our scholarship, as academic, has also work to do, meaning in the sense that you, you turn to the to the clerics, but you also mention you need also some <laughs> kind of input from religious knowledge. And we have lots of things to do here that honestly I don't think we are a little behind, (laughs) meaning we have work to do to understand religion not only as an individual or faith-based kind of aspect, but also having something to say for communities. And, and the demand outside the West is huge for that. Maybe, I mean, even in the West, I would no. say, but we are a little, so I want you to No, I. To I say. fundamentally
4: agree. Okay. I do think it is community, and I think the strength of the campaign was recognizing the importance of community. It was the reason we created local city teams. It was the reason we tried to ensure as much as possible that these were messages coming from a space that you trusted because when you hear something from your next door neighbor who you've known for 20 years, who is a member of yep. your community, who you trust, who you admire, you know their morals, you know their values, you're a lot more likely to trust it. That's why word of mouth is still the best marketing technique in the world, despite you know, the emergence of the internet and all of that. I would go a step further in saying, and, and I think this is particularly true for the women and the minorities in the room, but it's also for the men. Um, it is impossible, I think, to be a woman today and not be inherently political. Yeah, Our we'll bodies play. are political. <laughs> Yeah. Every time that you succeed, every time you fail, every time you enter a space, every time you leave a space. Um, I actually remember when I was uh, 22, 21 or 22, and one of my mentors, somebody who I admire and trust, um, who, is, who is an older white man, said to me, listen, I have to be honest with you, because I was getting frustrated that people weren't listening to everything I said when I walked into a room. Um, he said, you know, you have to kind of prove yourself. And I said, well, what, do you, what on earth do you mean by that? And he said, well, when you walk into a room, people see four things. They see that you're a woman, they see you're Arab, Uh, they see you're Muslim, and you're lucky, this last one you'll grow out of, but they see that you're young. And I remember when he first said it, I was very frustrated with it, but it's true. We all walk into spaces with what are perceived to be our superficial identities, right? When I walk in, I have to almost, um, unfortunately, and and I, I actually see it in my everyday life, where you almost have to prove that you're supposed to be in that room. And I'm sure most women here can attest to that as well in their own workspace. Or somebody will say something like, your English is so good, or you're so clever Mm -hmm. for a young woman. um, At which point I always say, you're so clever for an old man. And, um, (laughs) and, And the reality is we have those different political identities. The reason they're so important in today's world is because they are leveraged as political identities. They mean something for your socioeconomic status. Here in the United States, the color of your skin means something for your likelihood of dying in childbirth. These are realities, right? And you're not going to be able to walk away from them. But what we can do, and what I hope the Noor campaign did, and what I think a lot of religious scholarship can do, is actually leverage those identities to create communities where people can come and talk openly about the challenges, about whether or not, yes, their local mosque does actually serve the community well, or whether or not that local mosque needs to be transformed. The same goes for a church or a synagogue. How can our institutions, how can our religions better serve the purposes of our communities? Because, and and I do think it is uh, the way in which religion is talked about right now, where the two are almost forcibly separated. And I do think that does a disservice. It fundamentally does a disservice. And the reason that religion becomes a much higher priority in post-conflict countries is often because it serves that original purpose of community. It's the one that you know religious institutions provide flour, they provide um, water, they, they take on the role almost of community service provider, and so there's a lot more interest and engagement with them. Yeah. And that's leveraged by groups that, that don't necessarily want to use religion for the best outcome. And I think what we need to be able to do is recognize that innate need for human community and connection and say, if religion is a platform that is, exists, it's, I personally don't think religion is going away, I think it will mutate in different forms, but it's not going away. And if that platform exists, how can we leverage it to ensure the best fit for this community, for it to be in its best form, in its most useful, most compassionate, most empathetic, most merciful form, how can we do that?
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, I think we could go on and on, but it's better
3: if we um, stop here because (laughs) we could. And I I will give you five minutes to confer among yourselves. And then you can also write questions if you are not comfortable asking directly. I think some RPP assistant will collect uh, if you want to write questions. But I was told to give you five minutes of... um, not debriefing, but uh, <laughs> talking to yourself be- before asking questions. Uh, and we can open the floor for questions and answers with Dr. Morabi. So I take any hands who come up. Yes, please. Okay, I have two questions. First of all, um, I, think she said, um, I think it was you in your, your um, speech said that we should respect all cultures as being equal. Does that mean we respect cultures where women aren't allowed to drive and men control the world, are we equal to them? That's question one. Now, you said that, that you believe that the religion is male dominated because women weren't there when we, when we interpreted. So, so we have the Bible, and, and the term Bible doesn't necessarily only mean religion. We have a tax Bible, we have a political Bible. What are we going to do? We, whatever happened 2,000 years ago, we can't
4: undo. What are we going to do? We have a male pope. We have a male president. What are we going to do to change it now? I think it's a very good question. Um, For the first one uh, about, I think, the, would you like to take that or?
1: Yeah, so um, at our, th- I'm just speaking on behalf of RPP and myself, but I think when it comes to respecting all cultures, it's recognizing that the people of that culture have dignity, right? And that every person who lives in a nation where maybe the woman can't drive or she's still trying to get her rights to drive, that she is just as much a person and a human being with dignity as much as I am sitting here working at RPP, right? So I think it's really just more saying that um, And it's okay to recognize that injustices happen and inequalities happen, um, but we don't choose where we're born, right? And that um, respecting the people who live in those cultures and respecting those cultures and their experiences as as legitimate is what we stand for, I think, in RPP. And I think that's my answer to your question. I
4: think that's a fantastic answer. Yes, I do. I think that's a fantastic answer. And I, I would add, and you probably have a lot more in common with those women, and your government probably has a lot more in common with their governments than you guys have different, right? And so we have to recognize that there are different spheres of power. Um, and, and I mean, I think, I think the professor would probably agree with this one. I'm not, I'm not for superficial shows of women's emancipation. I'm not. I'm not for putting women uh, as ministers, I'm not for suddenly deciding you're gonna let women drive when it becomes politically expedient because your feet are under the fire for another reason. I fundamentally don't believe in it. I think women's rights and um, women's inclusion and the amplification of women does not look like you know, superficial check boxes. It looks like the fundamental reality of women having equal ownership, women having equal say legally, women being able to be things like the president. Um, I think that's women's inclusion as it is, and I think we're very good globally um, at, at checking those superficial boxes and saying, oh, you know, here we are, we have 50% women in our cabinet, and not really looking at the structural and the systemic. And so that gets me to the second question about what can we do for the structural and systemic. I think you know there's this amazing statistic about how um, over 90% of girls when they are seven think they can be president, and how that plummets by the time they get to high school, but boys still think up towards 100% that they could still be president. And what that statistic tells me is there is so much power if we talk to girls and boys when they are young. And I think what all religions fail to do very well is talk to children about scholarship, religious responsibility, and the power that lies there. And I think, and I can speak specifically for Islam, my hope is that women who are in positions where they say, listen, I don't think what's happening in my church, synagogue, mosque, et cetera, is right say, let's create alternative spaces where people can collect, where people can talk about different interpretation or different ideas, or create those spaces. And, and a good example is actually a, a group called the Muslim Space in Austin, where they've created a community where kids can come and play and ask questions about religion. And girls are not automatically told that they can't be you know, Imams and scholars. And, and they ask those questions and they engage them from a young age, because I can tell you from personal perspective, it is very difficult, and I do not think I would be here if it had not been for my parents, telling me from day one that I had one major responsibility in faith, which was to seek knowledge. And my mom would always tell me, when my brother would make a mistake and I would try to blame him, that you are independently in Islam, you are independently responsible. And we have a very famous saying by the prophet that you stand up, in if, if somebody commits, um, injustice even if they are your brother your sister your mother or yourself you must stand against them and so my mom would say that to me it was usually to get me to to rat out my brother or sister when they did something wrong but it was a very effective tactic in the sense that had i not been taught that i would not have thought i was capable to accomplish uh, what i was able to and i would not have thought i had the religious right to do so and so i think we really need to change the way we're talking to younger people and say, listen, you have the right to have these questions. Um, we're often in, in many of our religions vilified if we ask difficult questions about faith and about belief. Um, so you have the right to have these questions. You have the right to ask them. And what are your solutions? The same way we ask people to innovate in any other space. The same way we ask people to ask, can we drive better? Can we um, deliver things to people's homes? Like, the same way we ask practical questions, I do think we need to open the comfort of that conversation in religion, I do. And I think one of the challenges in religion has been it's always felt like you could not be part of those high level conversations, that you had to you know, be a professor of religious studies to even contribute. And I think we need to shift that because religion is inherently personal. Um, it's not academic, it's not theoretical. It's not, right? Religion, when you think about your own faith journey is, is oftentimes emotional. And, mm-hmm. it's, and it's about your own belief system. You're not usually reading through and saying, well, academically and you know, 1962, X and Y happened. That's very rare, and so I think we need to allow for the humanity to be part of that conversation. Um, I actually came because I was really interested to hear you speak about the SDGs. And um, my background is in the UN system before that Government of Canada, before that Médecins Sans Frontières. I come from Fletcher. So I was just wondering what your experience of the process is a bit. I mean, we see the, the language coming from Guterres. We see, I get the emails from my organization, PSEA response, you know. Yeah. But when you're out there in the field, like when I was in Afghanistan, we only had two female junior. Local hires in an in a office of 50 plus people with five sub offices, and same on the
2: Syria response to junior local female hires. And
1: you know, I, I just was wondering if you could speak to that, not only in, par- in terms of the parity, but sort of the larger structural and systemic
4: yeah. um, changes. I'd be That's really a fantastic interested. question. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges that faces the UN, um, faces most multilateral institutions, and faces every government is the inclusion of women in tangible ways from an agenda setting level. Um, what, what I think has, um, what the UN, because it's 193 member countries and all those different countries have different perspectives on women's inclusion and leadership, they have to attempt to marry that political reality with the daily reality on the ground. And so what you'll find them doing often is doing something like having a gender advisor who will sit next to um, the secretary general, special representative, but definitely not have the same level of power if any right and that's one of those checking the box oh women's inclusion we got a gender advisor um and and the difficulty there is it signifies and i I think this is the challenge politically it normalizes the exclusion of women or the parallel um, expertise of women so you'll have peace processes where they will have a parallel process that includes civil society and women Mm -hmm. they will not be included in the formal process right and what we're saying to local communities is we agree with you women are not important enough to be part of this conversation. And a large, a large part of the time, um, the UN and member states will say, well, culturally, we don't, we don't wanna get too sensitive culturally, it's a conflict environment. But at the same time, they will go and sit on the floor and eat with their hands and do all those cultural things at two or 3 a.m. to get an economic deal. They will do that. That is when they will you know, work with the culture to get benefit out of it. But when it comes to the inclusion of women, that's too sensitive of a conversation. So my issue with, um, My issue with, I think, the rhetoric on a political level is that we just don't have the will. And I think we need to start being a bit more honest about it. We can definitely, I think, Guterres is making attempts, uh, particularly with the leadership, but you can have 50% leadership of women, and when you look down the chain, if there's 2% mediators, 9% negotiators, there's something going wrong. You do not have the systems and structures in place to sustain that women's leadership. So we can have it now with Guterres and with the very next Secretary General go back to 10 or 20% and nobody would blink an eye. And I think we have to challenge ourselves and ask if we had 10 or 20% male leadership, would we be as complacent? Because I think that's one of our biggest issues. 50% was made a huge deal out of it. Everybody said, well, how is he gonna find qualified women? Where's he gonna find them? Is he gonna have to train them specifically? And we have never asked that when it is 80, 90% cabinets of men. Right, or leadership or executive leadership teams of men. So I do think we have to challenge ourselves in our own companies. The second thing I'll say, um, which, which I think is, is my call to action in almost any uh, talk I go to about political inclusion of women, it's very easy, I think, for us to look at structures bigger than ourselves. So MSF is a, is a good one. Um, the UN is definitely a good one where you can say there isn't enough women's inclusion um, or there isn't enough parity in terms of uh, racial equality or religious equality, et cetera. And I think the one thing that um, allows for me to have some sort of faith in the system and faith in humanity is that we all have the responsibility once you hold a position of power to open that door for other people. So my mentorship program came out of a realization that when I walk into a room, I genuinely look for other women and I look for other minority women. I think we all look for what we are. And I used to, when I was 21 and 22, think you know when there were no other women in the room, it was maliciously intended. I'd be like, these guys didn't want women because they know we're fantastic and we compromise and we make change happen. Um, And I would ask some of the men and they'd be like, I didn't even notice. They wouldn't have even noticed because their partners are there, people they've worked with, their colleagues. And so it took me a while to recognize that it's actually not malicious. We look for what we are. And we need to be able to also open the door and say there are more of me out there. I'm not the only qualified woman or minority or et cetera. Um, And I think that's a challenge that I give everyone. So men, women alike, go home and think to yourself, who in my company is not in a decision-making room? When I'm sitting around at a board meeting, what are the voices that are missing? Especially the ones that don't look like me, because we very rarely ask that. I can tell you I've I've never really looked around and thought about minority youth men as much as I do young women. Um, Almost never. And and I've had that comment thrown back at me, as as when I'm in a room, who do I think is missing? Uh, And and it's it's exercised my ability to say, not only will I start a mentorship program and encourage more women to get engaged, but I'll also demand structural change. So how can we systemically within the UN and other bodies, say from the internship level, which is unpaid still, which is a huge um, challenge for a lot of people who don't have the resources, but from an internship level, how can we ensure that as you climb up, women are increasingly included in managerial positions? Because we know from that first promotion, the first managerial promotion, how many, what's the percentage of women that make that first promotion compared to men? Who knows? Um, I have a company no promotion of okay, no promotion. I mean, you should leave that company. Um, <laughs> statistically, that's not the reality. So for every 100 men, it's 79 women that make it through the first managerial promotion. and Subsequently, every time after, you're looking at a 20 to 30% drop. So by the time you get to senior executive levels, you're looking at a leadership for women between 20 to 25% as opposed to men, right? And so the issue isn't necessarily recruitment for the UN, it's retainment. How do we actually retain equal, um, women employees? How do we retain employees as they go through different life cycles? You'll notice there's a huge age discrepancy in leadership in the UN because it's not well-versed to how can they actually work with a 35-year-old woman in, in you know, the middle of her reproductive years as opposed to a 65-year-old man who's at the end of his political career, right? And so we need to create a system that actually can retain people over time, create more flexible, and to be honest, create more lucrative positions so that those with families, um, those in local communities, actually have a and need to work with the UN, so things like Diaspora pay versus local pay would be another issue when it comes to women's uh, recruitment in countries like Afghanistan, Syria, etc. So it's, it's a it's a it's a difficult issue and it's one that I think most international NGOs um, Development organizations will face and are facing in terms of how to retain and recruit.
2: Actually, my question is not specific to gender equality a general question about sustainable development goals. So as you are the advisor for the SDGs, I would like to ask What are the system or arrangement in place to attain that sustainable development goals in 2030? What are the capacity building initiatives, structural dimensions, something like that, especially for the local actors?
4: Mm -hmm. That's a very good question. Um, The sustainable development goals, he's asking what are the national action plans, more or less, for the achievement of the sustainable development goals. And some countries have put their national action plans together Um, It's now in around 40 countries have have done that. Um, Some will actually be announced during the high level political forum this July in in New York Um, and some have not. And the challenge with the sustainable development goals, the underlying fundamental challenge with anything that is not legal doctrine in the UN is that it really is about sovereign nation states choosing to be part of this. And so in 2015, 193 countries signed on But there really isn't a checks and balances system at the UN level to say, if you don't do this, you're cut. That doesn't happen, right? The the countries at a national and local and regional level, uh, regions have to decide whether or not they're going to do a national action plan. And UN member teams um, and UN member states can definitely engage with them and say, you know, we can work (coughs) with you, we recommend. So the Office of Partnerships can say, we'll work with you to form a national action plan, we'll give you expertise, et cetera. Uh, But it it has to be country-led. And so my biggest recommendation to countries that do not have a national action plan is for the civil society there, which is many, oftentimes robust civil society to begin to engage on that. Uh, the SDGs, I think for civil society, um, and I compare them for me to resolution 1325, which is Women, Peace and Security, it was a UN Security Council resolution, are incredibly powerful. Some countries say it's just a piece of paper, right? Uh, which is true, it is. Everything is just a piece of paper until you leverage it the right way. And for us, Resolution 1325, Women, Peace and Security, meant I could use that piece of paper that my country agreed to to say, you need to listen to me. I need to be in these meetings. I need to be included in conflict mediation, conflict resolution meetings. I have a right to be here. You told the whole world that, right? And it was actually very good political leverage for me. And I do recommend to civil society to leverage the SDGs in the same way countries including the United States have signed on to those 17 goals they have signed on to climate change they've signed on to um, quality health they've signed on to no poverty they've signed on to peace justice and strong institutions and in countries where the civil society is robust and capable that's when government needs to have their feet held to the fire and say these are commitments you made to the international community these are commitments you need to meet at home and we'll work with you on that national
1: action plan so Sorry, we actually had a, one uh, anonymous writing question, so I thought I could pose it now. Um, if you had to point to, uh, say, one or two keys to improving the status of women globally, what would they be?
4: Oh, that's easy, health care and education. I think if a woman does not have uh, complete control over her body, uh, it is difficult to ask her to have any type of leadership in other or to demand that she has that type of leadership in other areas. Um, the fact that in 2019 we're still talking about women's reproductive rights as though they are a negotiable issue. Um, the fact that women are still taxed for basic sanitary products. The fact that girls are leaving school because of sanitation and because they get their periods um, completely negates their leadership and their and their agency um, from a young age. And so I think fundamentally access to healthcare and universal healthcare would transform the reality for women around the world. Um, second to that, education. Uh, if you educate 10% of, of girls in a country, the GDP increases 2 to 3%. Um, when a girl is educated, she creates a cycle of education for her family. She marries later, she has less kids, she's more likely to vaccinate her kids. Um, when women are employed, equally, to, they, they reinvest 90% of their income into their community as opposed to men who reinvest 30 to 40%. So, and, and girls, when we equally educate and employ girls, we're looking at a greater economic growth than China and India combined. So I think at the bare minimum, if we were to meet education and healthcare, we would see incredible transformational things when it comes to women's inclusion. By sheer force of the fact that they can then tap into the agency they already have. I don't think we need to empower women. I think that's disingenuous. Women have agency, they are empowered. I think we need to ensure that structures and systems are in place where they can then tap into that agency at the same rates we allow for it to happen to young boys and men.
3: Thank you very much. Uh, My name is Damaris. I come from Kenya. And I was just intrigued by you speaking about how you've been leveraging powers of communities and local actors to be able to succeed. And I'm thinking about Nairobi, which is a booming peace sector. And most of the people who work in that sector are not necessarily from the communities that come from there. And I'm wondering what kind of advice you would give to people who go to create or create peace with communities where they don't come from?
4: I think that's a very good question. Um, it would be dishonest, I think, and, and the young woman who also worked uh, with the UN could have probably attest to this. It would be dishonest to say that peace building uh, and conflict in and of itself is not a huge economic, uh, is not a huge money maker. That would be disingenuous. It's why a lot of conflicts reemerge, 90% reemerge within five years because war does mean a lot of money for a lot of people, peace building does as well. Um, There are entire companies and organizations that are built under that premise that go into local communities. Um, And I do, and this might be unfair of me, but I do fundamentally believe intention is different if you're going in for economics than it is when you are part of that community. And when peace and um, conflict are fundamental daily realities for you and for your family, I do think it's different than when you're parachuting in and um, part of a corporation that's, that's making money off of that conflict. That being said, I don't think it's going away anytime soon. Um, as emerging security threats increase, as we see more borderless conflict, as we see more uncontainable and unnegotiable conflict, um, we're going to see a lot more engagement from international actors. A good example is um, the Ebola conflict, right? You're, you're not going to negotiate with the disease and so you do have um, what is assumed to be international expertise and international support come in. And in those instances, oftentimes the international support and expertise is much better paid than the local support and expertise. So you're facing the economic reality for the local community as well. My piece of advice for this, to be incredibly honest, is that local civil society needs to create a stronger community amongst itself. That is very difficult because local civil society is often pit against each other for funding opportunities and Mm -hmm. partnership opportunities with international organizations. But I genuinely think it is the only thing that works. Because when you have a very strong, connected local civil society, and when you have strong and connected local, and they can even be employees of those international organizations, but when they are fundamentally connected to the local civil society, those international organizations are more often than not forced to listen to local voices with more measure. And when that civil society is fragmented, it's easier for international organizations to come with you know, agendas and, and numbers that have been dictated in Brussels and London of like, educate 2,000 girls, whether it makes sense or not mm-hmm. for that community, and actually get them implemented because they don't have that robust civil society that will stand up against them. I also think local civil society, when it is more connected and powerful, does not necessarily have to go through international NGOs as interlocutors to be able to get to their own government and to international governments. They are taken more seriously as an independent stakeholder. So that is what I think is incredibly important countries like Kenya, and I would argue even in, in countries like Libya, where unless civil society itself is very well connected to one another um, and, and demands their own agency, they do ultimately often get co-opted.
2: You, you mentioned the uh, uh, your concern for survivors of sexual violence in Libya and and, and you and reparations. Mm-hmm. How did the reparations go, and what would they constitute?
4: Um, well, what we were demanding was full reparations, so psychosocial health, education, the same reparations. There had been a set of reparations that was um, provided for some of the, rebel, the fighters. And so we had demanded the same. And the Justice Minister, a year and a half later, did uh, offer those reparations. Did so they,
0: Did they get them?
4: I mean, I think to the same degree that a lot of the, the military did. So I'm sure that those that were more proactive in reaching out got them. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have specific numbers for you. But for us, the end game was that they were actually a, a legal right. In, in both cases, the men and the women, there weren't cash payments involved? I believe there were some. I believe there were some. So if you were going overseas to get health care, I believe that was part of it, yes.
3: Thank you very much for your uh, conversation. I'm quite interested in to your uh, strategy to secure the message. That you mentioned that um, the team work with local leaders to make sure that it is the it is the person that local people trust. So it is better to <coughs> secure the message. And but I wonder is it I wonder is there an assumption that local people trust local religious leaders? What happened, I mean, what if, what if the local, I mean, local religious leaders do not have that trust among their people? And uh, yeah, so what will you do in that, in that condition?
4: For sure, our local city teams did not include religious leaders. Um, so when I said minister, I meant government minister. Um, and they included a lot of civil society, they included some students. Um, religious leaders did not wanna join our local city teams. I don't think they appreciated the idea of getting direction on faith from uh, organization uh, that focused on women's rights. And, and to be quite honest, I think we were comfortable with that. Um, a lot of them attended some of our seminars, we were in conversation with them, but, but we were comfortable with, with being able to give our message um, in a way that was undiluted or, or unimpacted by their interpretation or their personal beliefs. Um, so we didn't actively try to recruit religious leaders at all. We didn't. Especially because one of the reasons was because of what you mentioned, but mainly because we just didn't want to have to deal with those power dynamics. Um, I take one more question.
2: You mentioned that 70% of your class at the medical school in Libya were women. Yes. Do you have any knowledge about what percentage of those 70% became doctors or practicing physicians?
4: Oh, we had a much higher percentage of, of girls graduating. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm not sure how many would be doctors five years out, but I think we were still you know, in the 60-something when we graduated. We had, we had more girls in the class throughout. Um, I think one of the realities, and I joke about this, my sister's a pediatric plastic surgeon. She's a, a plastic surgeon in Canada. And when she wanted to go into plastic surgery, people overwhelmingly told her not to. She was the only woman during her, in her years of residency, um, and until now actually maintains the highest mark on the boards in Canada. Um, and she's been out for 10 years. She, she finished her boards 10 years ago, and people were often um, surprised by her desire to go into plastic surgery and would tell her, you should go into pediatrics or obstetrics and gynecology. Deal with kids or deal with the babies. That was usually what she got in Saskatoon. So I remember when I was in my last year of medical school in Libya. I was saying, I'm going to go into surgery, and somebody said, but why? Go into obstetrics and gynecology or go into pediatrics? And I was like, oh, turns out they're not so different after all. (laughs) So so around the world there is an assumption that women, particularly um, in in, in science-related fields, but medicine is where where women are more likely to go into dermatology. You know, there's this assumption that they'll go into the softer the healing fields, but the softer ones, right? And there was a picture that was trending on Twitter, I think, yesterday or the day before, where there were two kids, looked like they were about five, and the boy was wearing blue scrubs that said um, future doctor, and the girl was wearing pink scrubs that said future nurse. And there was a backlash from people on Twitter saying, like, why are we still trying to place these gender norms on these children? And so I think, are these assumed gender roles, and, and I think that that's true whichever country in the world you're from. I mean, the amount of times that I've signed an email, Dr. Allah and people expected me to be a man, um, I cannot tell you. And I think I'll close, I think we're, that's the last question, so I'll close up on a story quick that I, I like to tell because I think it's hilarious but also very depressing. Um, <laughs> it sums up life pretty well sometimes. Um, but when I was, went to my first big UN meeting, Um, And the UN does this thing where they really, they etch your name into your nameplate, and they really wanna show that they value your participation. And so I had prepared for about two weeks before this meeting, I flew in from Libya for it. Um, I used to have one of those old Motorola flip phones that I was real excited about. You all know what I'm talking about. Unless you were born like 1996, then you probably don't. Um, But I went to the meeting, I showed up early and sat in my seat, laid out my computer and my papers, Took a few pictures to send to my parents, of course. And then um, within minutes, a young intern came up to me, uh, probably only a few years older than me, and said, uh, Excuse me, Dr. Morabit. Uh, or excuse me, but that is Dr. Morabit's seat. And I hear he is very difficult. <laughs> so if you could go, please sit in the back with the support staff. And I did something that I think a lot of people could argue would be very out of character, where I picked up my stuff and I went and I sat in the back. I think I was pretty just shell-shocked. And it wasn't until some of my colleagues came in and they were like, what are you doing in the back? Sit in your seat. And I was like, oh, I was just you know, taking it all in. Um, and and I, I don't know, if by a show of hands, how many of you have done this where you've gotten into an argument and then you've spent the next two hours like in the shower, driving home or whatever, thinking of all the things you could have said instead of what you actually said. Yeah? So I spent the next two hours of that meeting thinking of all the things I would have said. Oh, you don't think a, a Dr. Marabit can be a woman? Oh, you don't, like I was gonna go, off, and I have 10 brothers and sisters, so I am very good at arguing. Yeah. And so I was prepared with some responses. And it wasn't until about 10 minutes um, before the meeting ended, where somebody said, we were talking about young women's inclusion, and someone said something so ridiculous that it snapped me out of kind of my thinking, because I noticed everybody else agreeing with. And I was like, wait a second, what, are you guys really talking, that's your solution for women's inclusion? And they were like, "Well, where have you been? We've been talking about this for the past two hours. Now you suddenly disagree with us? And it was, I think, and I, and I actually do attribute this to you know, the mercy of, of God, the universe. Um, I fundamentally believe that had I left that meeting without being snapped out of it in that moment, I wouldn't have started my mentorship program because I wouldn't have recognized how systemic the problem is that it's not about one intern not knowing, it's because our systems have taught young women that leadership does not look like them. And I would not have realized that when you are in a position, because I remember prior to that meeting I was overwhelmingly opposed to quotas, and when I left I wasn't. And it was because prior to that meeting I thought, you know what, when you deserve to be in a chair, you earn it, you work hard, you're listened to, you're heard, et cetera. And I left that meeting thinking, if you have people in those rooms that have different perspectives and different realities, and you ensure, you ensure that they know that it is their responsibility when they're, they're in those rooms to speak up and to be heard, they can actually change and shift the conversation. They can do that, one person can do that as long as they fundamentally believe that, that is their right, that is their responsibility, that they, that they have to own the space they're in. And I think if we were to more actively ensure that women and minorities were in all positions that we had equal, inclusive representation. We're not talking about 90% women, 10% men. We're saying if we had representation that looked like the societies that we govern in, if we could fundamentally do that, I think we would have transformative policies that could actually be implemented and could be trusted. But unfortunately, we don't. So that's what we all have to work towards together.
0: Yeah, thanks so much. Um, Maybe could I just ask one more question? And um, uh,
4: (laughs) I I, I took the mic off. This better be real good. (laughs) Um,
0: uh, So thank you so much, uh, both of you, for an inspiring conversation and and, um, uh, a kind of moral, political community vision to, and I suppose that's my question, I mean, as you look out from the UN and the Sustainable Development Goals and so on, what's your optimism level like um, a, a, about uh, what we've talked about tonight? And are there real examples of countries that you think have made really substantial progress in, in, in these areas in the last 20 years and that, and that we might look to as, as exemplars going into the future? Um.
4: I definitely think so. I think Rwanda is a very good example in terms of being able to take a very fragmented history and, and cultural reality and shift it um, to ensure greater inclusion. There's obviously challenges there, but I think in the, in the time that they've been able to completely shift a lot of cultural norms um, to the betterment of society, to ensure inclusion, to create significant growth and innovation, I, I do think they're a very good example in that regard. Um, they have the highest percentage of women in parliament. Um, that, that has really been spurred uh, predominantly by their investment in, of women economically and in their investment in ICT. Um, and a lot of that was because there was that window of opportunity post-conflict that exists in most conflict areas um, for you know, social and gender norms to be challenged, and, and that was taken on um, fully. In terms of optimism, I'm so glad you ended on such a positive note. Um, <laughs> I am optimistic, I actually am, and I'll tell you why. I think that, um, I mean, optimistic might not be the best word. Mm. I'm, I'm realistic. Mm. I think that, I think if we look at the world today and we look at the reality that we all live in, um, I think it is the first time in history, in history, and this will always happen. In 10 years, people will be more capable to do this. So this isn't a unique moment, this is something that grows um, every minute, which is why I think it's beneficial, but we are all more uniquely capable of determining our place and our destiny than we were 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. That's a reality, particularly for women around the world. I know that had I been born um, you know, the year my mother was born, my life would probably look fundamentally different. And something that I heard every day from my mom growing up, especially when I complained about school, um, was that If I could do anything for myself, it had to be to be entirely independent. My mom raised 11 kids, and her one piece of advice for life was always you need to be financially, you need to be be independent. The only person who should tell you what to do and where to go is you. And you need to be able to create that for yourself. And I think that the reason we see so many women of my generation saying we can do this, we want change, is because of the doors that were opened by our mothers and our grandmothers and leaders that came before us. That's the reality. And so while it might look like we're only at 30% now, we were only at 10% 20, 30 years ago. And if we're at 30% now, imagine what the next generation is going to be Mm -hmm. capable of. So I don't think this is a quick fix. I don't think we're all gonna wake up in five years and be like, oh, Madam President, oh, this is fantastic. Oh, the world has changed, women's rights is here. I don't, I do think that this is generational, but I know for a fact that if we continue to work the way that we have been working, In 10 years, people will not confuse climate change as a fallacy. In 10 years, people will not continue to talk about healthcare as though it's not a fundamental human right. In 10 years, people will not challenge the right for girls to have equal education to boys. In 10 years, parents will not be devastated when they're told they're having a girl instead of a boy. I fundamentally believe that the only thing that can move us forward is by people like those in this room, like the professor, like yourself, demanding of their institutions, their jobs, their families, and themselves betterment, and saying that the only way we advance is when we teach those closest to us, because that's where we all have our power. We can all have power at work, we can all have influence, but really, you know, the mimicking, the, the, the actual role modeling, the truest form of power is the people around you and what they take from you. And I think that if we can all, in our spaces of power, at home, at work, at school, wherever we hold that power, demand that we are going to hold ourselves and our community to a higher standard, we're going to see that moving forward. So I'm fundamentally optimistic because the people I'm around demand that of me. I hope I demand that of them. Mm. Um, I've been told I'm difficult so probably (laughs) and um, and and I think that you know I I imagine in 30 40 50 years um, when I see my niece and and I see where she is I'm going to be amazed because those weren't even options that I considered Mm. and and I think that's something a lot of our grandmoms can say about us
2: Mm. Thank thank you